Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. Back at you this week. Got a great response on the Cleveland Browns episode last week, which is really a deep dive. Belichick the week before that. This week, going to be a little bit more of a potpourri, you could say, episode. But there are going to be some big thematic issues, especially in the second half of the podcast, where I'm going to go into a way of looking at decision-making where I think I have the correct paradigm to look through decision-making now, uh, especially from the coaching perspective, but also on the decision-maker front office um, decisions that are, that are going on. And the way I'm looking at it is not when we talk about loss aversion, we talk about risk aversion, being too conservative. It's going to something that's going to encompass that, but also encompass some mistakes that are made on the other side. So I'm calling it regret aversion, and that being the biggest factor. And I'll get into some more of that later. So again, I'm not going to get into it too much right now. You'll see that in the second half of the discussion. I'm going to start a little bit more topical today. So for those who may not have seen, Matthew Stafford is part of the discourse, the famous underrated, overrated discourse. I think it was Kyle Shanahan who called him underrated we had a list from Bucky Brooks of the NFL saying he was the most underrated player in the NFL Dan Orlovsky who played with Matthew Stafford has been dropping little nuggets about Stafford about how underrated he is and this is not really the first time this has happened with Matthew Stafford the whole Stafford is underrated thing I think he's been clearly seen as a top tier talent his entire career it's not an accident that he went as the number one overall pick. He's able to make throws that very few quarterbacks can make as far as the quote-unquote arm talent. In this case, really just flat-out arm strength, but he can also throw off of different platforms with about as much velocity as anyone out there. So when you're looking at his tape, I could see how a coach looking at him or an observer or an analyst can see that he can do things that a lot of quarterbacks cannot do so you combine that and then you say in a lot of cases I'm a head coach here let's say it's Sean McVay looking at training for him let's say it's Kyle Shanahan talking about him I as the head coach you know what I can scheme up some things I can fix some little issues I can help with the decision making a little bit as far as how he's able to do that and I can mold all of that to really turn him into that elite quarterback because the things that you can't coach he can do already right out the box Uh, the problem with that thing of course is that those things that you can coach into someone are maybe not as little as consistent as people think and some of the decision making things you know Stafford's had a ton of different coaches throughout his career and it hasn't worked out so so well Uh, the reason it's interesting the Stafford discussion is that I put out an article on Stafford back in late July I'll go ahead and give myself some PR here for this article. So I'm reading it here on pff.com. It says, what has the name? My name first, Cole. And then it says, buyer beware for teams banking on extraordinary quarterback play from Matthew Stafford. Now, this was an article that was written before the trade went down. And what's interesting is we're hearing all this underrated, underrated, underrated talk. And then when the trade went down, you know, it was significant, the trade package, right? But there wasn't a first round pick for next season. Could they have gotten that somewhere? I don't know. Uh, Jared Goff was thrown into the deal. I'm not sure if that was really that much of a positive or not. But it wasn't a huge deal for Stafford, despite the fact that he's in his early 30s. He's going to be around for a while. When people are talking about an Aaron Rodgers trade, I think they're wrong about this, mind you. But when people are talking about an Aaron Rodgers trade, they're talking about something like three three first-round picks for a player who is significantly older. So I think the NFL, while... There may be this consensus on this underratedness of Stafford. It may not be ahead as much of the public as as some think. But we look at Stafford, there was a few different things that I pointed out to. So I'm going to look at the two main measures of quarterback play. Your passing grade by PFF, your grading by PFF. This is how I look at things. Your grading by PFF and your expected points added per play on the other side. So if we look at Stafford, he hasn't been great in either one of those categories. Now, 
I'm just going to go through some of these just to lay the baseline. So last year, he was 14th in both of those different categories. And when we talk about rankings, we saw, again, adding to the Stafford discourse, the fact that ESPN came out with its quarterback rankings in a similar, it's similar to the piece that Mike Sando does with the athletic now where they're talking to 50 quote unquote insiders in the NFL to get their opinions on different quarterbacks. Right? So the insiders here have Matthew Stafford as being sixth in their rankings. Now, if we're looking at his, like I said, his, his rank in EPA and in grade throughout his career, he was 14th in both last year. He was fifth in both in 2019. And this, this was really his best season, 2019. I think some people may be going on that a little bit now. But there's also an important dimension to this season to remember is that he only played eight games. He only had 323 plays that he was involved in, about half as many as in a lot of these seasons. So there's a high, high likelihood knowing the type of quarterback and how he has ranked in the past in these categories that he would have regressed over the second half of the season. And we see in 2020, he did move down into that 14 mid quarterback range. So now let's go before that. Let me see. Let's just go by EPA rank here. He was 21st, 14th, 8th, 15th, 15th, 16th, 14th, 5th. So 5th, this is the one of the year, 2011. I know people remember there was a quarterback explosion in 2011, Matthew Stafford being one of those people. He has 716 plays. He was involved in a ton of plays. Uh, he was a top fantasy guy. His grade, though, was only 16th, so not nearly as high. Um, so if you look at it, he's only been a top 10 guy by EPA three times. One of those, the highest one being in his shortened season. He's only been a top 10 graded guy two seasons. And one of those being the shortened season there. So we have a quarterback who's being ranked as sixth, who has only been into the top 10 in these categories a couple of times over an 11 year career. Now I'm not counting 2010 because he barely played in his second season in the NFL. So a lot of projection here. Now, last year's rankings for ESPN, he was 10th, which is stretching a bit, but at least it makes some potential sense. Although what's weird to think about is, okay, how did Matthew Stafford get from 10th last season, right? Uh, going into last season, after he was coming off of this performance where he was fifth in EPA, fifth in grading in a shortened season, how did he get from there, perform like an average quarterback, and then now jump from 10th up to sixth? Uh, so there are a couple of different factors that are in play there. Just from a pure rank ordering perspective, the, some of it is explained just by who is gone now. So if you look at on last year on the list, Sean Watson was ahead of him. He's not being ranked here. I think he would clearly be ranked above Stafford if he wasn't having the uh, sexual assault allegations going on right now. So that's one guy that would knock Stafford down to at least seventh. Um, Drew Brees retired, so he's no longer on the list. He was ahead of him before. Carson Wentz, you know, fell off the face of the earth, had such a trash season that there was no way that he was going to be also in the top 10. So that helps explain kind of three of the moves up that aren't necessarily like based on this strong opinion of how much better Stafford is going to be this year. But the two things that don't really make any sense to me is he jumped Dak Prescott and he jumped Lamar Jackson, um, but at the same time was passed by Josh Allen. So those are all the moving pieces that shows how he went up four spots in the season. And I think if you look deeper into Stafford, the problems that are beyond his EPA rankings, and this is what I detail in this article, is the support. So I think people are conflating a little bit how poor of a team the Detroit Lions were to explain how Stafford's performance has not lived up to the hype around him and that the performance from a numbers basis hasn't been there. I agree that Detroit as a team has been really bad, but the thing is it's kind of been more on the defensive side of the ball than anything else. If we're talking about support for Stafford, um, six times in the 10 seasons between 2011 and 2020, six times he had a pass block. The team had a pass blocking grade. The Lions had a pass blocking grade in the top 10. That's 
pretty good in a 32-team league, right? And it's hard to say that he didn't have support there. And then if you look at the receivers, I looked at every single drop back from Matthew Stafford. And then I looked to see which receivers were on the field for those same plays. And then I took, and I said, the percentage of Stafford's dropbacks, how often was player X on the field? So Calvin Johnson was on the field for 49% of Stafford's career dropbacks. So we're talking about a Hall of Fame receiver, one of the best ever to do it, was there almost 50% of the time that Stafford's dropping back. Golden Tate, 42.5%. This is prime Golden Tate. This is Golden Tate of years ago, when before he went to the Eagles and then and then had struggles there and then went to the Giants and wasn't quite the same player. This is really when he was in his prime when he was playing with the, with the Detroit Lions. He was there for a significant amount of time. Marvin Jones, almost 40% of the time. Maybe not a top, top-notch receiver, but hey, as a number two or a number three guy, excellent, right? Um, after that, it goes down a bit. Brandon Pettigrew and Eric Ebron were about 30 and 24%. What's interesting about those guys is they're not great players, but they're both first-round tight ends. These are two tight ends that the Lions drafted in the first round to surround Matthew Stafford with talent. Uh, and then next, Kenny Galladay, 20% of his career snaps. So again, Galladay, a top-notch receiver, went to the Giants this year on a big contract. So Stafford really has lots and lots of top talent out there. And when we say that he's passed someone like Lamar Jackson, I looked up the same numbers for Lamar Jackson. And remember, Jackson in my analytical quarterback rankings was number three, I believe, two or three. I'd have to look that up, honestly. But anyway, he was right there at the top. A lot of people thought it was kind of high. But if you look at him and who is he, who has he had, right? While Matthew Stafford has had 50% of his snaps with Calvin Johnson, who leads the drop back percentage for Lamar Jackson? Well, number one is Willie Sneed at about 65% of his dropbacks. Not quite Calvin Johnson, I would say there. Uh, number two is Marquise Brown with about 65% of the snaps. Again, Marquise Brown, first round wide receiver, uh, first wide receiver taken in 2019. So I'm not going to say he's bad, but I don't think he's really proven himself to be good. How much you want to put on Jackson, how much you want to put on Brown, I'm not sure. But again, we're discounting guys like Brandon Pettigrew and Eric Ebron for Matthew Stafford, where those were also first round guys. Uh, Mark Andrews, who's been good 64% of the time. And then next, Miles Boykin, around 40% of the time. Nick Boyle, 30% of the time. Hayden Hurst, 20% of the time. And some of this has to do with how the formations work with the Ravens. They have a lot of tight ends. They have a lot of running backs. Uh, Seth Roberts, 20% of the time. Gus Edwards, 20% of the time. Uh, Dobbins, Ingram, and then uh, very, very dusty Michael Crabtree at 15% of the time. I mean, that's bad. I have trouble imagining anyone else being worse than that. So... From this underrated, overrated perspective, I'm going to say people putting Stafford into that underrated bucket, it just seems like how people get fooled by that over and over again. The narratives that you hear about the support he hasn't had doesn't make any sense. And now Lamar Jackson is kind of almost in this bucket where the average fan sees him as being overrated. I mean, this is the unanimous MVP a couple of years ago, right? Yet he, according to this ESPN quarterback ranking, uh, this season was eighth. So behind Stafford, behind Dak, behind Josh Allen, behind Russell Wilson, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, all those guys. I mean, it's understandable, but still, when you look at the rankings, they have the highest and lowest. So the highest ranking Lamar Jackson had from anyone, any of these 50, remember 50 different surveys was five, was number five, was the highest that anyone had him after last season, whereas last year he was number six overall and his highest ranking was second. Um, so he's really, really fallen off. And think about that court. Think about that receiver play that he's had around there. Now they have Rashad Bateman. They have Sammy Watkins. They have Tylon Wallace, who they, who they, uh, they drafted also in the fourth round. They have all those guys coming in there. I think it could be a very different situation for Lamar Jackson this year. Um, so that's why I would put him on in the true underrated category. Now, as far as underrated, overrated discourse, I want to talk about a big mistake most people make with this. And I'm going to head back. I know I got hit on this a little bit too much, but I'm going to head back to a year ago, Russell Wilson. I called him slightly overrated in the offseason. 
uh, I was getting pummeled and a few, uh, you know, a handful of weeks into the season, that was looking even worse. That was a situation where even if it was a solid bet to say that Wilson was slightly overrated going into the season, things moved the other way. The market moved against me severely the first few weeks. Um, if this was a stock I was shorting, we would have come down to that old investing maxim that uh, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. I would have been broke because the market went completely irrational. And in fact, I want to talk about the irrationality of the market and viewing someone as under and overrated. So what happened was in mid-September, so a few weeks into the season last year, I put out a poll on Twitter where I asked, where is Russell Wilson's, how is he, what's his ratedness, I called it. I'm, I'm making up that word, of course. So what was his ratedness amongst media and fans? Because Bill Belichick had said that he is underrated, severely underrated by the media and the fans, right? Um, so the, the results came in and 56% of people said he was underrated. According to the media, the fans, about 40% said properly rated and only 3.6% said overrated. Now, let's think about it. I'm asking fans and maybe some media people this question. So there almost becomes this like logical proof in it where if everyone thinks a player, if the majority of people think a player is underrated and then the, you take the balance those people overwhelmingly think that player is properly rated and no one thinks the player is over is overrated. Can that player actually be underrated? Is it possible to be underrated if everyone thinks you're underrated essentially? And to put a little bit more proof on this after Wilson's fall at the end of the season, and this is in December, I sent this out. So this is early December. So it doesn't even count the fall at the end, end of the season and including a, a really poor playoff performance. I asked again, what's Russell Wilson's ratedness, right? And 70% of the people said properly rated. Only 16% said underrated versus 56 before. And 15% up from 4% said overrated. So this is the same player. His perception is way down from point A to point B. Yet way more people think he's properly rated, properly rated or overrated. And way fewer think he's underrated. Obviously, that cannot make any sense, right? Unless you believe that he has fundamentally changed who he is over the course of that one season, that it could be true that everyone is has a much, much higher opinion of him and he's still underrated and then he switched around the other direction. And I think there's, there's this directionality and poor time sequencing when it comes to people thinking about overrated or underrated. Everyone thinks they have this unique opinion that's not part of the crowd. Everyone thinks they're a you know, shiny little snowflake uh, who can't be equaled by, by anyone else. And they're saying, yeah, everyone else is way behind the curve. I'm ahead of the curve. When they don't realize they're right in the curve of where popular perception is. And this is happening with Stafford a lot right now. You have all these people saying, hey, look how everyone loves Stafford. Everyone's saying he's, he's underrated. Well, the key is, you know, people are just talking about it more. People are trying to get out in front of what could be a good season, at least from a records perspective from the Rams. But people aren't really ahead of things saying he's he's underrated. If anything, they're getting way ahead of where his talent is and way more on the overrated side of the equation. All right. So the second segment I'm going to hit here, and it's a little bit of a promo slash segment, is on underdog. So for those who don't know, underdog fantasy offers best ball drafts, the best format for doing best ball drafts, in my humble opinion. Uh, there's promo code PFF. You deposit $10 at underdog. You get a free PFF edge annual subscription. So you get all of the analysis out there that we have from everyone from the NFL football side to the fantasy football side to college football side. And the analysis that I want to talk about as part of this is a breakout running back piece that I did last year. So there were some similar pieces out there, one in particular, and I always want to give props to my man, JJ Zacharyson, where I was working on my piece almost about this concurrent with when he was doing his, his dropped a little bit earlier last year than mine. I found some of the same conclusions, not necessarily all the same conclusions there. And 
what I did was I said, let's look at these running backs that are in the middle of NFL drafts, uh, fantasy drafts, and try to figure out what are the characteristics that we're looking for. So I looked at first experience, how long have they been in the league? And to figure out where the most value was, I looked at, according to their draft position, how many fantasy points will we expect according to their fantasy draft position, ADP? And then what was the difference? So where are we getting surplus value, right? So when I broke them up into different cohorts, the strongest spot, um, the strongest spot by far was third year running backs. And a lot of that is because they're a little bit smaller in the candidate pool. Um, because if they haven't broken out in years one or two, people are kind of writing them off. They're really writing them off. Normally, these are guys who were hoped to be breakouts in year two. It doesn't happen. Then they're kicked aside and they're not wanted anymore. Now, that can happen. The second best group are the second year running backs. That can happen with the second year running backs, too, for those who disappoint as rookies. And I'm going to talk about some of those potential guys for, for, for this season there. So that can also happen there. But it's really those second and third year backs. There's some value later on down the line, but once you get beyond third year, if you're not finding a breakout, it's going to get harder and harder to get to that level. Uh, the other thing I did was I looked at all these different running backs and I said, let's look at the different components of their production and see how they're outperforming. So based upon draft position, I figured out how many targets you, could you expect they would get? How many rushing attempts could you expect? So those two volume components, I looked at efficiency from a yards perspective. So yards per carry, yards per target. And then I looked at touchdown efficiency. So the percentage of touches, rushing touches that end up being touchdowns and the percentage of catches that end up being touchdowns. And I looked at all those different components and I said, where are, where's the outperformance coming from? Like, how are these breakout players doing what they're doing? And it's mostly on the volume side. So, and really mostly on the receiving side. So normally these players are getting about twice as many targets as you would expect based upon their draft position. They're really getting a huge, huge amount of targets over what, what you would expect there. They're getting about 65% more rushing attempts than you would expect and around 60% more touchdowns in both capacities, rushing the ball and in receiving. So those are high, but not quite as high as the targets. Now, the yards per carry and the yards per target, that's much lower. It's only about 15, 20% outperformance versus what you would expect. So again, you're not, it's not about efficiency. It's not about breaking off these long runs. It's not about being a better running back necessarily. It's about getting more volume, having more faith there, being part of an offense that's going to get you more touchdowns, getting some luck, honestly, on the touchdown side and getting some more hard-based skill type of things when it's just getting more volume, getting more targets. So it's really those receiving backs. If you can find someone who's going to outperform in that category, it's very, very important because getting an outperformer just on the rushing side of the equation isn't necessarily going to put you over the top in, in the fantasy leagues. So I'm going to start right off the bat with the second year back in Clyde Edwards Hilaire. And I wrote an article about his, his breakout chances. And what's interesting about him, of course, is he was running back seven last year. Now he's down to running back 15 as far as his ADP is concerned. And there's nothing really worse about his outlook. Uh, no Le'Veon Bells there anymore, who hurt him at the end of the season slightly. Um, Damien Williams, who opted out last year, is also gone to the Bears. So he's not there. He's still part of that offense. Now, I think some people might just think that he's not any good. Uh, but remember, this is a player who rocketed up draft boards and is now the 15th running back off of the board playing for the number one offense. He's, he was targeted enough. He had about more than four targets a game. So he was there. He wasn't getting enough volume though. In the running game, wasn't getting enough touchdown luck. He had a lot of goal line carries, especially early in the season, which he was stuffed on. So he wasn't getting those numbers that you would have hoped for there. Uh, he underperformed his expected fantasy points, according to my calculation there, which takes account for, field position, down distance, air yards, all that stuff. He underscored his expected fantasy points in a PPR format by about 25, 30 points. So meaning he, he had a more valuable workload, wasn't getting the points, which is surprising because again, he's in this offense where you should be getting a lot of efficiency. So I think he is a very good name to keep a lookout for um, and potentially scooping up here. Some other ones that I want to talk about, I think both of the Buffalo running backs, it's interesting we have a second-year running back in Zach Moss, a third-year running back in Devin Singletary. Singletary might even be a slightly more interesting to me because Moss is getting so much hype there. 
but this was a team that only scored eight non-quarterback touchdowns last year, meaning rushing touchdowns that were not Josh Allen rushing touchdowns. Josh Allen himself had eight rushing touchdowns and then 40 passing touchdowns. So out of the 56 touchdowns for that offense, um, 48 of them were Josh Allen running, Josh Allen passing. Uh, the running backs were barely getting anything. That has to regress some. Now, I think there's a concern about ceiling when it comes to that, but that has to regress some. And I think there's a place where you could potentially find some value for those for those backs. Now, looking through some other guys who may be in their uh, second or third seasons, there's not a ton, honestly, that that really jump out in this sort of range. I mean, I think if you can get guys cheap enough, um, although they have a little bit more experience under their belt, I think guys like Chase Edmonds can, can be interesting. Um, Josh Jacobs, maybe even potentially. Lots of people are off of him, but he's in the 20s now, which I think can make him a little bit of a, of a pick. And then, you know, Miles Gaskin. He's uh, someone who people just don't believe in going into his third season and running back 28. Uh, so he's in that 26, 28 range. He's another guy. Hey, it's not going to cost a lot to take, to take a dart throw at him. And he's in that bucket where it's someone who can catch the ball. It's someone who's in that third year where he meets all of those different criteria to potentially have a big boom type of season. All right. So um, this is going to be the main segment here, the main part that I'm going to talk about. And I hinted at it before, and it's going to be about regret aversion. Now this was triggered by listening to an interview, The Flying Coach, which is a ringer podcast where Sean McVay and Peter Schrager interviewed different people. They interviewed Kyle Shanahan. They asked him about a call that he regrets. Now, the call that he mentioned is a very famous um, play. It was the in the Super Bowl against the New England Patriots. And I'll I'll lay out the scene here just to make sure everyone knows what's going on. There were about four and a half, five minutes to go. There was a long third down. Matt Ryan completed the, the sideline catch to Julio Jones. Everyone remembers it. It was right outside of the outstretched fingers of the defender. Julio had to almost double catch it because he barely caught it with his fingers, and then he secured it in. He toe-tapped out of bounds. Um, at that point, it's first and 10 on the 22-yard line. And like I said, there are about five minutes to go something like that um on first down the falcons run the ball what's interesting about this play call is that they actually run a a a toss play to the outside which eh, you know you're, you're risking a little bit more not only potential for uh dropping the toss but the further the play goes outside the higher the holding penalty percentage traditionally in the in the nfl so if you don't want to get knocked out of field goal range Maybe don't run a toss play. But anyway, they lose a yard on that play. So now it's second and 11 from the 23-yard line. And this is the play that all the talk was about afterwards. And Shanahan talks about this. And he says that he regrets the play. But it sounds more like he regretted the play call than the fact that he did not run the ball again. But maybe people will interpret that a little bit differently than I have. Let, let me play the clip right here. And then you guys can, can make up for yourself what you think when he's talking about what happened there on his decision on second 11 from the 23 yard line. We ran the ball and it got to second and 10. The last time I was down there, it was second and 10. I ran the ball and they stuffed us and got us to third and 11. Yet we also had a holding call on it and it knocked us back out of field goal range. So we threw it to Julio, he caught that. I ran it the next play, got to second and 10. And I was like, I'm going right to Julio. I'm just, and I called a play to totally go to Julio. Right when we snapped it, the coverage took it away. So it was the wrong call. Okay, so you see there, he says, it was the wrong call, the coverage took it away. And he didn't say it was the wrong call to pass the ball. And when the discussion goes on, it talked about, 
how he was being aggressive. And McVeigh jumped in here and he said, hey, you know, you guys are being aggressive, just like Pete Carroll was being aggressive when they threw the ball with Russell Wilson and the pass was intercepted by Malcolm Butler, that famous play against the Patriots. You guys are being aggressive and that's what you got to do. You got to be aggressive. Okay, that really bad Sean McVeigh impersonation there. Um, and it's also kind of fraudulent since McVeigh is one of the worst as far as going for it on fourth down, but I digress. Um, I want to talk about the, the factors that, w- that what this triggered in me in, in the decision-making, because the discussion became like, don't you want someone to be aggressive? And I even got into a little bit of a back and forth with our own Sam Monson on Twitter, where he said, hey, you guys are always criticizing, or everyone is always criticizing for coaches for not being aggressive enough. And then when they are aggressive, you're going to criticize them for saying they're being too aggressive, because I was saying that it was the wrong call and they should have ran the ball. So I think what this illustrated, though, is that a lot of the framing around these decisions and quote-unquote analytics is a conflation of analytics means always do this one thing, and the one thing is traditionally what teams have been ignoring, like being more aggressive, like always passing the ball, things like that. That's what analytics means. When in reality, it's losing the ultimate end goal, which is winning and increasing win probability. That is the ultimate goal, right? So when you're conflating those two things, then you start to get in these situations where it's like aggression is always good. Going forward is always good. Passing the ball is always good. Now, people could say, well, there's like this risk aversion slash loss aversion. And that's why coaches are always more conservative than what you think they should be. So I thought about that more and more. And I think it's really wrong to talk about loss aversion and talk about risk aversion so much. There's definitely a phenomenon of that, that, that losing something hurts more than gaining something. And that's why there's loss aversion. It's definitely a case that there is not a willingness to be risky to put yourself out there, right? But what those things all come down to is really protecting yourself from feeling a certain way afterwards. And this is what people do more than what we can realize because it's not true that coaches are always doing the more conservative thing, right? I can think of a couple of specific instances where coaches are too often doing the more aggressive thing. So they're not just always being conservative, right? Uh, two potential instances that I can think of is that, well, they're not always doing it, but two, but two things they're often doing it. You'll see coaches who will go for two with a tie with down by one. If they score a touchdown and there's like a minute or left or something like that, 45 seconds left, they'll want to go for two there and win the game, try and win the game. The problem is if you do that with more than 20, 30 seconds left to go, you leave your opponent way too much time to get the ball back. And then they're going to be, pedal to the metal, trying to get a long field goal and then beat you rather than go to overtime. Another instance, we've seen this in some overtime games, um, that coaches will play really aggressively in overtime to not tie. Again, I don't want to tie. Like I'd rather win. And I think it's because the real emotion that people are trying to avoid, the real thing people are trying to avoid isn't the risk, isn't the loss, it's the regret. And in those situations where teams are being more aggressive, they're looking at it as a tie and they realize, you know what, I'm going to, if I play conservatively here and we tie the game, I'm going to regret the what if, the what could have been by not at least trying for that win. I'm going to regret that more than it's going to hurt when I go for it, I try to win and we lose. Like that's going to hurt also, but it's going to hurt more just to take the tie or to take the situation that's most likely going to be a tie. The regret, you're avoiding the regret there. So you're making the, a worse decision in a lot of cases here as far as getting a half win to your record if you're tied rather than giving yourself a chance where it's going to skew the odds 50-50. It's going to skew it more towards winning or losing, but more so in the losing than the winning. And what Shanahan said in that clip that I played for you, the reason the regret really jumped out at me was the fact that he specifically mentioned they were in that same circumstance 
second and 10, second and 11 was, was actually what they were in, but second and 10 in field goal range, they ran the ball. They got a holding earlier in the game, which, which knocked them out of field goal range. So he didn't want to run the ball again because he didn't want to regret that. He knew that was a strong possibility. Plus, he said he'd been sitting on the sideline watching Tom Brady march up and down the field the entire game, and he wanted to put the game away. If you look at the throw that they were trying to get to Julio Jones when Matt Ryan gets sacked on the next play, if you look at that throw, this is a corner route from Julio Jones. I looked at the the All-22. This is a play they were trying to complete a pass that Julio would have caught on the five-yard line or in the end zone. They were trying to score a touchdown. When they were up by seven points already, they had the ball in the 23-yard line, okay? And a field goal effectively ends the game, really effectively ends the game. You don't need a touchdown. So it wasn't like they were just trying to get yardage to get a first down and bleed more clock before kicking the field goal. He was trying to end the game, which is really something you didn't need to do. But I think he really had that. He didn't want to have that regret because he saw what Tom Brady was doing on the other side. He knew what happened earlier when they didn't. Um, when they, where they ran the ball and they got the holding penalty. And he knew that he would have regretted it if he did not give Julio Jones another chance after he had just made this spectacular play. And if you think about it, the 23-yard line, that's a 40-yard field goal. So I looked, and for field goals between 36 and 40 yards, um, I'm going to bracket that season, that 2016 season. I'm going to say between 2015 and 2017, The field goal percentage on those was 87.5%. Maybe it's the Super Bowl, so maybe you knock it down to 85%, but it's in a dome, so it might be a little bit higher. But this was a high, high, high probability field goal. If Matt Ryan would have just fallen forward a couple of different times, gotten it to be, let's say, a 38-yard field goal, that's going to go in most of the time. But I could see how a coach not being aggressive would really, really regret doing that and then putting it on the foot of the field goal kicker who could potentially miss, right? Again, regret is driving things, not loss aversion, not risk aversion. Shanahan did not want to regret letting the kicker decide things. And instead thought the aggressive move was the right move. And this goes beyond football. This, once you start to understand the regret aversion, um, I'm going to bring up a, a, a perfect analogy is a lot of stuff that goes on with investing. And for the young hip guys out there who are in you know the crypto world, NFTs, those sort of things, a lot of the purchasing that was going on in those markets is based on this regret aversion, right? What you like the fear of missing out. There are a lot of people that would say to themselves, you know, I see people making money out of this. If I don't invest in it, I'm going to feel worse seeing it go up than I am if I invest in it. I'm part of this community and it's all going down together. I'm not going to regret it as much because there's so much, so many other people were part of it. So they're really trying to avoid that feeling of loss, of regret that's going to come there. And that's forcing them to be more aggressive. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, we know that when people invest, they have a tendency to buy high and sell low. So they're getting hit on both sides of this regret. When the markets are, are skyrocketing, they realize they're going to regret it more if they don't get in and they miss even more gains. When the markets are falling, they realize, you know, I'm going to regret it if I don't sell and this goes down to zero more than I'm going to regret selling, saving what money I have, and it turning back up again. That's, what, that, that's what's happening there. And again, to, to hit to this regret aversion when it comes to the NFL, a really strong example of when teams are not being aggressive enough, I mean, I'm sorry, not being conservative enough in a way, is not running the ball on third and fourth and let's say two, three yards to go, not running the ball on fourth on two point conversions, those situations. Teams don't want to do that because they feel more powerless when you just hand the ball off to the running back. And that's a play where it's either going to get blown up or not. There's either chance or no chance of, of, of it working. Now the statistical chance of it working may be higher than the statistical chance of a pass working, but at least on a pass play, you could say, 
if the quarterback would have made the right read, put the ball in the right location, then it could have worked. Like any play could almost has a chance of working. So you're almost giving yourself always a chance. And I think there's more regret if you just hand off the ball and someone gets stuffed, then there is regret if you roll out your quarterback and you hope to make a play in a situation like that. So again, you have the regret driving those, the, those feelings and how people are reacting in those situations. So now that we know that this regret aversion is what's driving a lot of poor decision-making, the logical question is, how do we stop it? How do we mitigate it? Um, I think it's important that decision makers know, maybe they, they hear a speech like the speech that I'm giving here to talk about it. They're aware of it, but that's not enough. I don't think even the best decision makers, even when I'm talking about myself, when I know these things, I still always want to build into my process as many safeguards, as many guide rails as possible to help push me towards the right decision because I know that I'm a human being. Everyone's a human being. And especially in the moment in these high leverage situations where you need to make the right decision right then and there, we're all human beings. We can't say that it's going to happen correctly just because we know we should be doing it. Even if Kyle Shanahan knew that it could be regret aversion that's causing him to want to pass the ball there based on what happened, you know, you, you'd have to have an almost out-of-body experience in order to be able to know those things. So how can we help? How can we help coaches in those situations? How can we help GMs who feel like I need to draft this player because I'm really going to regret it if that player ends up being great because I know X about them as opposed to just taking the right player at that particular moment, right? Um, so let's talk about how, how do we do that? It's not easy, especially on the NFL level. And because one of the main ways to do it is you just take it out of the hands of the decision maker or you lower their ability. You set up more automatic checks. Um, let me use the investing analogy again. So a good way to say, let's, 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 let's get rid of this selling high and, and buying low, right? That, I'm sorry, the opposite. <laughs> let's get rid of this uh, um, selling low and buying high, right? Let's get rid of that phenomenon that we don't want. So how are we going to do that? I mean, a lot of what people are paying for an investment advisor is honestly just to have one there, someone there to convince you not to do the worst of your intuitions. That's a lot of it. They are separated. Okay. This is your money. This is not their money. They have, they're professional. Now, they're going to want to act to save their own business, true. But in these sorts of things, they're, they've seen the ups and downs before. They have that separation from the emotion tied to the investment more so. So they can more easily say, you know what? Let's stay the course. This is why we're doing it. It's a long-term investment. Okay. And at the same token, we're talking about when to invest, when not to invest. Hey, just dollar cost averaging. If you have $20,000 to invest, rather than saying, you know, I'm going to wait for the exact right moment to do it, say, I'm going to invest $1,000 over the next 20 months. That's going to take out of the equation, thinking about buying and selling. It's going to make sure I get into it. If the market goes down, I'll be buying more shares. If the market goes up, I'll be buying fewer. Um, so less price risk exposure there. But basically, it just takes it out of your hands to have to make these decisions where you're going to end up being driven so much by regret. So on the football side of things, and this is, again, why it's difficult. It's taking some of that authority away from the primary decision maker. That's tough because traditionally in the NFL, the head coach is the king, is the head of the fiefdom of the team. And when it comes to, you know, fourth down decisions, uh, other game management stuff, you know, coaches don't even want to give up that stuff where they clearly could have someone else who's, who's doing that sort of thing, right? Do you think offensive play callers are going to want to give up more control of what they're doing? Do you think coaches are going to want to give up more control of fourth downs? Probably not. Um, but we have to nudge people in the right direction. So one, I would say you'd have to work on coaches for thinking, you know, maybe the traditional way of doing things is not necessarily the best way of doing things, even if they're not going to believe it. And 
some coaches aren't going to want to take that job, but trust me, there are coaches you could probably get even to take that job if you can get them to buy in a little bit on it. You just may not get the top head coaching choice who's, who's not going to believe that. So an easy flip is to say, we're going to turn, we're going to use other means of default. So rather than the fourth down decision being, here's what the numbers are saying, here's what the interpretation of someone who really studies and understands this is saying, now you make the decision, we're going to say the default decision is what the numbers and the person who's an expert outside, who's not the coach again, is saying that's the default. And the coach has a veto option, which will be highly scrutinized and shouldn't be exercised too often. And we're going to track when it's exercised. And we're going to talk about the feedback there. We're going to give a lot of feedback to coaches about when's that, when, when, when it's exercised. So again, it's like a little nudge there. Rather than saying, you have the decision with this, with this input, we're going to say, the decision's already been made and you on rare occasion can veto that decision. That's one way to lower regret because the coach credibly, when things go wrong, will say, won't say, oh, I really regret making that bad decision. They'll, they can share some of the responsibility to, hey, this is how the system works. It wasn't me as much. I knew that it wasn't a slam dunk to veto the decision. I think everyone believes that. I'm not going to regret not vetoing something when it's close, but I might regret going with the numbers where my gut's telling me it's slightly the other direction, right? When I'm the primary decision maker and 100% falls on me with this information. So 100% is not going to fall on the coach anymore. What's going to fall on the coach is to make extraordinary decisions, if it's really, they really believe it's outside the bounds of what the numbers are saying. So that's one way. Have the coach be a, a nudge rather than go through it. Another way is a committee approach. I think this works better probably in front office personnel decisions and things like that. But there could be more than one voter, more than a few voters who are deciding certain things, especially in these high leverage situations. And these big play calls is to say, let's not just leave it to one person. If you have two people, three people, if anyone have an odd number of people or an even number of people with the head coach having the final say, um, each one of those people is going to have less regret. They're more likely to say, you know what, let's do the right thing rather than the thing that I'm going to regret the most because I'm not going to be the single person this is pinned on. Right? Um, I'm not going to have that problem. I'll give you another quick example. It just came to mind. I was listening to the Bet the Process podcast. Anyone who doesn't, uh, it's by Jeff Ma and Rufus Peabody. Rufus is a professional gambler. Jeff also does some gambling, but he's most famously known for being the principal character in uh, Bringing Down the House, which is a, a book about card counting. Um, but they have a podcast and they were talking about very obscure thing here, but it was women's water polo and and betting on it. And Jeff was had some information about the fact that it could be a profitable bet. And then Rufus said, you know what, I'm going to put down a bet uh, right now on that. And Jeff said, oh, no, no, don't do that. I'll feel bad if you, if, if you bet on that and then lose. Again, so he what kind of was not being motivated. I'm not, this is not to say anything bad about Jeff because this is kind of a piddly sort of thing. But there is an element of, unless you're super overly confident, you're going to want to do the thing that's going to make you feel the, the least bad. So as a coach, you're going to want to do the less controversial thing because not only are you going to feel bad about stepping out there and being wrong, but you're going to get you know, hammered by the media and by fans and everyone else over and over again. So that's a way to lower your regret. So if you have a committee of people making this decision, now maybe it's not going to go over well with fans and others, although I think it's the right approach. But if you had in a quick process, even if it's a quick process, if you had a committee of people making, making these different decisions, you're lowering the regret level proportionally. It's not like you're splitting the regret, regret evenly between the people. It's much, much lower because you're not the one person that's going to have to think about that afterwards. And there's solidarity amongst people making the right, going together, and you can boost each other up making the right decision. Um, so that's another way to systematically build in systems to lower the regret and thereby lower the regret aversion. And the last thing that I'll say is simply delegation. I know that's a problem for head coaches a lot. But the more you delegate, 
uh, the more you empower people below you, the more you're going to be able to spread that regret out. And the more you're going to be able to allow people with a higher level of confidence to make these decisions because they have more expertise than that one individual person. And the higher confidence you have in doing something that may be untraditional, the less likely you are to regret it. Like if I really understand the concept between behind going for two when you're down by eight and it doesn't work, if I really understand that and have been studying that, I'm, gonna re- I'm not gonna regret that decision at all, let alone have less regret. Whereas if someone else really, really knows it and then they're telling the coach, hey, you should be doing X, he has to decide whether or not that's the right move or not. And when it goes wrong, he's gonna have some regret more so because he's not as confident in what's going on there. So you wanna have confident, capable people in order to have that high level of confidence in all of these different ranges of the, of the game. You need more specialization through that. You need more willingness to defer. And let me hit up uh, one more ad copy here for the podcast. And this is for Western and Southern. Uh, in these uncertain times, life is full of questions like when should I start thinking about life insurance? But however difficult these questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them backed by over 130 years of experience. Together, we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement and investments, compensated endorser, products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. All right, the last thing that I'm just gonna hit you guys with really quickly is I love the feedback that I've been getting. Go ahead, email me at kevin.cole at pff.com. Leave reviews on the pod. Uh, Next week, I'm going to continue to hit on some of these deeper dive topics. And I also have a big thing on um, a stick to sports segment on empathy and actually against empathy is a book by uh, Paul Bloom that I'm going to talk about. So if anyone wants to read any of that in advance or look up anything by Paul Bloom in advance talking about empathy, I think it's been a very paradigm shifting change for how I've been looking at things. And maybe a little be a, it'll be a little bit book clubbish that we can talk about some of the concepts behind that book against empathy next week, um, how it applies beyond sports and how it can also apply within sports. But for now, Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope everyone had a great week so far this week, and I hope you tune in again next week, and I'll be talking at you then. Thank you. 